believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. I'm Brent. And Ryan, I, I guess we should note right at the top here that um, like everyone who doesn't own a full-size body condom or hazmat gear, we are working on location in our respective homes. Uh, <laughs> is it is it okay if I do have a full-size body condom, but I'm still working from home, social distancing. I mean, that changes it's re- everything. It's responsible, though, right? It's responsible. I, I think what you need to do, what makes you and your family feel safe, and uh, oh. if, that, if that's a full-size body condom. That might that might go against that, then. I'm not sure. But either way. So, yeah, um, uh, I'm here in my home. You're there in your home. Um, my neighbors leave their dogs outside on their second-floor balcony and... Squirrels mm. are running amok, and uh, my family's walking around just kind of blatantly defying mandated social distancing practices. <laughs> um, I have cats that I'm trying to social distance from, and they don't seem to understand that. I'm like, get out of my bubble, and they just want to constantly rub up against me. So annoying. All right, so, <laughs> Ryan, you probably remember um, back, uh, uh, what, was that a couple of weeks ago? When humans were mm-hmm. were allowed to roam freely in the United States, right? So you and I talked about seeing the Apollo Eleven exhibition at our local museum center here in Cincinnati. So 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of the legendary moon mission with Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, we saw this exhibit at our local museum, and it was one of those things where it's just something that everybody's talking about, you know, uh, because of the anniversary, everybody was talking about how America had won the space race, and, uh, you know, the U.S. had established itself as the technologically advanced country uh, in the world, but but one of the more overlooked aspects of those missions uh, are the behind-the-scenes efforts that helped us get there. Uh, just recently, uh, at the age of 101, uh, we lost uh, NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson, uh, who helped develop much of the math that allowed the lunar lander to meet back up with the command module while they were in orbit around the moon. Uh, you might uh, remember her story as well as uh, the other African-American mathematicians. Uh, it was recently depicted in the film Hidden Figures. That's right. But a lot of the other people who were part of our space race and the ascent to the moon have really sordid histories and backstories. And that's what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. So in this NotCast episode, we are setting the record straight when it comes to the scientists who help get America to the moon. And we'll learn about the price we paid for their help. So Operation Paperclip was issued in secret 
by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, the name the U.S. gave to this covert mission. And that's what we're going to dive right into right now with the help of Dr. Brian Krim, author of Our Germans, Project Paperclip in the National Security State. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Brian Krim. I'm a professor of history at the University of Lynchburg, formerly known as, as Lynchburg College until recently. And my areas of, of scholarship and teaching interest are you know, modern Europe, uh, the Holocaust, uh, military history. And for before I became a professor, I was an intelligence analyst with uh, the Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security. So those interests uh, sort of coincided with, uh, with Operation Paperclip, which is both an intelligence operation and, and also something deeply rooted in the history of the Third Reich. So it was, you know, a transnational topic in a lot of ways, uh, bridging, you know, modern American history with the collapse of, of the Third Reich. And so I first came upon that topic in graduate school. I wrote a paper for a diplomatic history seminar, and and it wasn't a great paper. It was one of my worst grades in graduate school, actually, because I, I it was such an overwhelming topic, and I didn't do enough of it. I didn't go too deep. Uh, I scratched the surface, and it always stuck with me. So when I had uh, a, an opportunity to write a, a second book. Your, usually your first book is your dissertation. And so I, I did that. I wanted to get back into this topic and do it correctly. Hmm. And that meant, uh, and I was aided by the fact that the U.S. government had just released 8 million documents relating to our involvement with the Third Reich and Imperial Japan that had been kept classified for a number of reasons. And so within that giant cache of documents, there were uh, new uh, uh, foreign, sci foreign scientist case files and all this information related to paperclip. And, and I was one of the first uh, historians to, to get into that trove of documents. And so mm, I wrote, very cool. yeah, yeah it, was, it was good timing. And so people wrote a number of books about all these new revelations about how the U.S. intelligence community used Nazis uh, in a number of areas. Uh, and, and paperclip was part of that investigative journalists in the 70s and 80s had, had first ex broken the seal on, on the topic to show just how tainted some of these heroes of ours were, including Werner von Braun. But this new release gave even more detail and more context to how the government um, integrated these people into really every level of of what we would now call the you know the military-industrial university complex. So a treasure trove of documents are released in the late 1990s detailing just how America, along with other nations, responded to the end of Germany's participation in World War II. Here's the secret. The US, Russia, France, and other countries began to allow Nazi scientists, many of whom could otherwise have been tried for war crimes, into their countries in return for the scientists' knowledge and labor. America got the best of these scientists by far, led by the handsome, well-spoken Werner von Braun, former leading developer of rocket technology for the Nazi regime. I, I wanted to kind of write a, a history that got away from both extremes and the, the most dominant History, historiography, you know, what historians call the history of history. But the most common story is the one you kind of probably saw in the museum, which is these were very you know, brilliant people that fit in well with America and we made them <laughs> part of our own 
culture and that worked out nicely. And yes, they had some Nazi backgrounds, but it was minimal. And that, the reason that story was dominant is because it is told by NASA. It was told, at least back then, by NASA itself, by the scientists themselves who get to write their own history. Um, and that really persevered until the 1980s where these journalists uh, found the real story. And, but they go the other extreme and talk about they're all Nazis, they're, they're inhuman and cruel, and, and the U.S. government is corrupt and conspiratorial by doing this. And I found that both sides were were missing uh, a, a more sort of reflective look at this. And so that, that caused me to write uh, Our Germans Project Paperclip and the National Security State. And my idea of, behind this was to not only talk about the operation and how in-depth it was and how uh, organized and planned Operation Paperclip was, but to get to the stories that haven't been told, like the people who resisted it. There were large numbers of bureaucrats in the State Department who opposed it on moral reasons, on ethical reasons, and for legal reasons. Uh, there were beyond just people like Albert Einstein who opposed I was going to say, Einstein was yeah. famous for that, right? Yeah, you'd expect him and, and the NAACP and the Federation of American Scientists and, and the Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was head of the American Jewish Congress. So that there's those stories, but also to see that within the government itself, there was opposition. Uh, how did the FBI become so... Uh, integrated into paperclip when originally J. Edgar Hoover was appalled by it, but then he suddenly became the biggest ally of, of the operation. Uh, I wanted to shed light on these stories as, as well as uh, restore some balance to the fact that it, while it was a very effective program, there were a number of people who did uh, have minimal Nazi background and, and fit in well, and others who had their records completely whitewashed, which I can show you, know, you could see literally where they have marked out the bad words about their past and are replaced with new ones, and wow. intelligence officers themselves doing that, and, and show that, you know, it's a more complex story than they were all Nazis or they were, you know, a new breed of American heroes. <laughs> so for years during the war, Germany had been working on a secret weapon, one that would become the first version of the intercontinental ballistic missile, the V-1 and V-2 rockets. These were guided missiles that could cross the English Channel, break the sound barrier, and inflict massive amounts of destruction Despite the enormous production cost for these weapons, the Nazis tried and succeeded in deploying them against England just before the end of the war. This was Werner von Braun's life work with the Germans, and the American government knew that when the Nazis fell, their next great enemy would be the Russians. So the Americans had to have the best, deadliest weapons around, and it was clear the U.S. needed von Braun. But what it did to, is alert everyone that there's, we need this is new. We need to find these people, and not just that. You know, electric submarines, yeah. um, jet aircraft, uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons that we knew they were designing but had not yet put into the the field. Um, and every ally, as you said, every ally wants this, and some. So we're we're competing with our friends, and not just mm. the Russians. We're stealing scientists from our British allies, and the French are stealing a lot more from us, and mm. than the Russians ever did. It, it was a real free for all. Uh, once the war came to that conclusion, and there was, you know, and you're dividing Germany into zones of occupation. Everyone was stealing from everyone else, and I did not realize just how much of a of a the Wild West mentality was going on here until I, I got into the documents. And you always think about the Russians. We fear them. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, it was the French who we were more annoyed with and scared of and because they were so brazen and just 
kidnapping people, you know, scientists from our own zone of occupation and oh, wow. them into moving cars and using women to lure scientists into hotel rooms and sneaking them off. Into a, you know, by force. I mean, it was it was a crazy huh. environment. The kind of fall of 1945, uh, early 1946. Yeah, there was. This is why why I called the you know, the subtitle of my book is the you know the the national security state mm-hmm. is because this is a. You know, I mean, we're used to in American history after we conclude a war, we you know we become isolationists. We draw. We we go the other direction. We disarm. We go to our peacetime role. There was an understanding among our elite and government elite and military elite that after this war the infrastructure we developed should stay in place and not just because of a potential Russian enemy mm-hmm. so there was a um, a a concerted effort to to keep the, the same group of people that brought you the Manhattan project together or to the joint chiefs of staff that waged this war successfully to keep them intact to, to militarize the State Department to see them as actually a part of the national security state instead of of an independent you know, uh, arm and, and and so suddenly these german scientists the, the idea of bringing german science over to the united states despite their nazi backgrounds would at one point that would have seemed ludicrous but now it became almost kind of a, a necessity to to maintain as you said our 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 leading edge not just against our our enemies, but also even our friends. So, uh, individual armed services, you know, like the Navy, the Army, Army Air Force, which is not yet the independent Air Force yet. Right. They all uh, were looking for scientists on their own, and and so the uh, um, the U.S. military occupation government decided to coordinate all these efforts and and create a, a task force, this Joint Intelligence Intelligence Objectives Agency, to. Uh, create you know, use a, a working list of people they know they wanted to get a hold of and, and find them and interrogate them and they didn't think about getting the people over yet so much as their uh, prototypes and the warehouses full of equipment and but they soon realized that they couldn't make sense of this equipment pretty well mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was more dangerous to kind of try to work with them in Germany itself when they could be kidnapped <laughs> by the French or the Russians or whomever and so someone thought even though it was unorthodox, let's bring him to the United States. Uh, and initially that was going to be in the form of military custody. But uh, then the idea was, well, we need him here for the long term and to bribe them because they have offers from other powers. What about immigration? What about even just giving them uh, really permanent positions? Mm. Most of the military, a lot of the military is for this. But the State Department, whose job it is to for years is to keep Nazis out of the Western Hemisphere. Right. Are now being, yeah, they're now being asked to to help them help us break our own laws and the treaties that we signed with other countries. Uh, so a lot of uh, State Department opposition. Um, they also were appalled by the fact that we're going to give visas to Nazis while we're letting 300,000 displaced persons who are languishing in what's what's left of concentration camps, they can't get to America, but we're gonna give visas to Nazi party members, including SS members. We think of Werner von Braun and and that that group, they were brilliant. And there's also only 120 of them. Mm -hmm. We brought over 1,500 
scientists, engineers, and technicians. And a lot of them were just no better than an American engineer who got a degree from Georgia Tech. But in the eyes of the American government, the Nazis were a thing of the past. Their minds should be working for the U.S. because there were new battles to fight. Many of the Nazis were brought to America and forced to settle in camps near Huntsville, Alabama, or in Texas, or New Mexico. But none was more visible than von Braun, who used his rocket skills to help create what we now call NASA. In 2009, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wayne Biddle wrote Dark Side of the Moon, Werner von Braun, the Third Reich, and the Space Race. He says... He first became interested in the topic as a child. Well, once again, uh, for baby baby boomer kids uh, in the 1950s, Werner uh, uh, von Braun became a TV celebrity after appearing on uh, the Walt Disney um, television series uh, uh, as a uh, spokesperson for um, uh, the Tomorrowland uh uh, element oh, of Disney World. Right, right, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, they were hugely, enormously popular uh, TV shows uh, in the mid 1950s, and Von Brown uh, was adopted uh, by Walt Disney to um, narrate uh, the uh, 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 segments of, of that show um, about uh, about traveling into outer space, uh, and uh, we we kids. Uh, were riveted to those programs. Um, what we, uh, what the, uh, his, what von Braun's popular impact was, was as a uh, visionary uh, of uh, the future, mankind's future in outer space. Um, that was the public face that uh, Walt Disney. Uh, helped create for von Braun and turned him into a celebrity uh, years before. Um, his uh, actual work for the U.S. Army or, or later uh, for NASA uh, became, uh, became his popular uh, anchor. My more sophisticated uh, interest as a historian and journalist mm -hmm. in Werner von Braun, um, uh, I think, had been growing uh, over the years, going back into the 1970s and 1980s. He died in 1977. Um, there, uh, at that time, were um, uh, uh, very um, subtle uh, threads in popular culture that uh, perhaps there was a dark side to uh, to Werner von Braun. Mm. Um, uh, Tom Lehrer's uh, well known well-known song about von Braun from the early 1960s that uh, you may you may remember this ditty about how von Braun uh, that he launched the rockets but didn't care where they came down gather round while I sing you a Werner von Braun a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience call him a Nazi he won't even frown Nazi schmazi says Werner von Braun Say that he's hypocritical Say rather that he's apolitical Once the rockets are up Who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department Says Werner von Braun uh, that, that was uh, 
known kind of a, a, among a kind of counterculture, if you will. Okay. Um, uh, but not until the 1980s were archives uh, opened, uh, federal archives opened, um, that journalists uh, and historians could delve into uh, and uh, look at the record, uh, such as it was, such as it is, uh, for what uh, uh, Von Brown had actually been involved with uh, pre-1945. Um, that expanded uh, after... German reunification. By the 1990s, it was possible again for uh, Western jur journalists and historians to actually travel to the sites in Germany that had uh, been the major ones had been in uh, the former East Germany. It was possible again for uh, Western journalists to travel to those places uh, to uh, investigate uh, on the ground. Um, what had been there and uh, uh, that led to a widening uh, awareness of uh, Von Braun's uh, culpability. So the Von Brauns were highly educated aristocrats, right? So his father was the Minister of Agriculture in the last regime before Hitler took over in Germany in 1933. When he was young, Von Braun joined an amateur rocketry club and soon he was recognized for his brilliance there. He was plucked from the club and placed into a secret military class where he would work on classified projects. By 1937, he was a member of the Nazi party and by 1940, he had a commission in the SS, the major paramilitary organization under the Nazis. It is estimated that 20,000 concentration camp prisoners were killed during the making of the V1 and V2 rockets. One of the uh, one of many um, uh, incredibly dark uh, tales from uh, from that era. I, even after all these years, I uh, honestly have a hard time talking about it without uh, mm. starting to feel uh, uh, pretty emotional. Um, so you'll excuse me, but oh no, uh, no, I apologize for that. Uh, um, uh, it, you, you, no one would ever want to try to rank the horror of um, of these atrocities that happened in Germany. Uh, uh, the uh, specifically, though, the V two program came to rely on uh, slave labor uh, drawn from the Buchenwald um, concentration camp and elsewhere uh, to uh, build um, the rockets in an underground. Uh, cave, a vast underground cave system uh, uh, in uh, northern Germany near, near a town called Nordhausen. The camp was called Dora, D-O-R-A. It is not, still is not one of the infamous uh, camps that are more well-known like Auschwitz or Buchenwald, but mm -hmm. um, uh, well over 20,000 of the slave laborers uh, who were involved in the construction of the V2 there uh, died in the process under uh, uh, incredibly brutal and sadistic circumstances. Um, Von Braun was one of the overlords of that uh, production, underground production facility. He was a technical director and uh, closely familiar with the operation of the facility. Um, uh, it took many years to uh, to establish from um, uh, records, a few existing records of the time, just what his involvement was. But uh, 
there is documentation that he was personally involved in choosing uh, Buchenwald uh, prisoners uh, to be transferred to the Dora camp to uh, work on the V-2 missiles. So that alone is classifiable as a war crime, wow. that kind of personal uh, involvement with, with slave labor. Uh, you mentioned Project Paperclip uh, before, which was the uh, uh, publicized um, program to bring um, uh, German scientists and engineers uh, to the United States uh, as a kind of the, the term that has been applied to it. <coughs> excuse me, is intellectual reparations. That's that's the way it was seen at the time. Mm. Um, uh, the publicly known program was Paperclip, uh, and about a thousand uh, of these uh, 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 German scientists and engineers were brought over. The, the rocket group was uh, uh, closer to a, a hundred or so. There was some resistance from the American scientific community at the time, but it was quickly swamped by um, by Cold War considerations, which. Uh, which ramped up uh, in the years after 1945, and uh, by the 19 by the early 1950s, uh, uh, the controversy of bringing those uh, Germans uh, to the states uh, had pretty much dissipated. In fact, I, I remember in my um, junior high school uh, that there were a couple of kids in my classes with. Uh, uh, very ethnically German names whose fathers uh, I knew worked at the local aircraft plant uh, in my community. Um, I, wow. <laughs> I of course, I of course had no idea uh, in those days that they that they were part of this uh, uh, program. But uh, in retrospect, uh, uh, it's um, it's um, um, something I, I, I recall with some chagrin. So America, as well as other countries, welcomed the scientists in like free agents. And it was true that many of the Germans weighed their options. Should they go to Russia or America? What would offer them the most money, freedom, and the best quality of life? For those who came to America, they immediately had to adjust, as did the American residents. In Huntsville, Alabama, which would later become known as Rocket City because of the technology developed there, there was a definite culture change. Yet in her book, German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, Dr. Monique Laney describes it being not as drastic as you might think. I'm not sure how much of a culture shock it really was. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, I mean, you have to consider World War II, um, and this is, by the time they end up in Huntsville, it's 1950, so it's five years later. Mm. Um, there's a certain affinity that Americans seem to have felt, uh, those who went to, to Germany during the war have felt towards the Germans even after the war then. Um, and so, you know, many of the people actually, many of the soldiers were of German descent themselves. And then at the same time, you know, by 1950, so much had changed. Um, Germany had become basically an ally again, right, in the fight against sure. communism. So um, I don't think they were necessarily perceived as so culturally different. 
um, and and the and the impact was really in some ways it was at the time it would have been minimal because they were coming with thousands of others from across the nation, right? So there were a lot of GE employees coming to town um, and other um, service members, right? Um, all in the context of this rocket program. So the you know 120 or plus um, families, German families, really were a small percentage of the entire group that was coming here. And then over time, that even uh, that the percentage dwindled even more because even though there were more coming directly from Germany, there were many more coming for the NASA program later um, from from other parts of this country. So mm-hmm. the Germans were really a small group in that context. Um, but they grew kind of in stature and in image and the way thought of, people thought of them um, because they brought their special expertise and they also brought um, some cultural differences, right? So um, classical music is one of the things that comes to mind um, that became, uh, you know, it wasn't initiated by them, but a lot of the, the family members, um, were trained, you know, in some form and could participate in the orchestra here in town and um, and were also just generally interested in certain cultural aspects that then became more prevalent here, if that makes sense. Um, so from what I learned from talking to the Germans that I spoke to, um, and that's first and second generation, um, it was actually really easy and it was also very much a liberating feeling because they were coming from Fort Bliss where they had lived um, basically in an enclosed environment. Um, they were free to move after a couple of years, but they, uh, to move around and go to El Paso and places, but they weren't really on the um, free economy, if you will. Um, and so here, when they moved to Huntsville, they were, you know, they could buy houses, they could live wherever they wanted to, and they did that. And, um, my understanding is that they encountered very little animosity, if anything, um, and th- some of them even expressed surprise about that. They expected to, to see more animosity. Of course, there were segments of the population that opposed the new wave of German immigrants, including Jewish and African-American communities, as well as others who couldn't understand why we were inviting Nazis to develop critical technologies. First of all, the number of Jews in this town was fairly low. Mm. Um, Jews in the South is is, a, is an interesting topic in and of itself, right? Um, the few that were here had really tried to um, become part of the larger community and not um, be too visible, if you will. Mm. Um, but um, but I did hear from some people who um, talked about, for instance, a a grandfather who. Um, you know, who had lost family or friends in the Holocaust and who basically um, would always stay away if, if Germans showed up in, in his store. He would basically go to the back and have somebody else deal with them. Um, things like that, right? Um, so it wasn't open, and it was even so subtle, I think, that the Germans wouldn't have even noticed it or anybody else would have noticed it, as that often is the case, right? So... Mm. Um, you know, uh, people with privilege don't normally notice what's happening to those who don't have the same privileges. Um, or So that's well, similar to the African-American community here, right? So I interviewed uh, people here. And for them, it was more like, you know, the Germans, it didn't really matter as much that they were German, except that that kind of added insult to injury because here they were part of the larger white uh, group that African-Americans were gra- trying to 
fight against, essentially, uh, for their rights. Mm. And um, yeah. so they were just part of that. But then on top of that, they were foreigners <laughs> who had more rights um, than, right. you know, natives, um, African-Americans. So, yes, there were some um, some grumbling, but not loud enough and not enough um, to make a difference at the time. Werner von Braun was a celebrity. Uh, a lot of stuff in that town still has his name on it. Um, but the interesting thing was he was never in charge um, because I think they knew what was going to happen. Never in um, charge of what exactly? NASA. Uh, when a lot of people look back and say, well, he should have naturally been in charge of NASA. But I think the government knew the kind of public relations hit that they would have had to have taken even then if they were going to raise him into that kind of uh, um, that level of of. Uh, of importance right. uh, so when it came not to a good group. look former Nazi heading up a massive US agency right yeah I mean even even then people knew that he had a little bit of a shady background and I think it would all it all would have come out if he would have been promoted into that to that kind of important job yeah well it's 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 been uh, it's been interesting um for the second time in a few weeks here on the show, um, you know, verbally beating the crap out of Nazis, which is I I enjoy. <laughs> uh, I hope that's right. I hope others do as well. Um, so yeah, we'd like to thank Dr. Monique Laney, Dr. Brian Krim, and Wayne Biddle for sharing their stories with us today. So did you know, Ryan, that we've got a lot of other stories about the CIA in our Ripley's archives? For instance, you can check out our website, ripleys.com, and learn about how in the 1970s the CIA developed the Insectothopter, an unmanned surveillance drone disguised as a dragonfly. Believe it or not. Just the size of a dragonfly, the device was powered by a small engine developed by a watchmaker. Why was the project eventually abandoned? Find out on Ripley's.com. So we've talked a lot in this episode about World War II. And as you may expect, we've got plenty of stories in the Ripley's vault about the topic. But I'm sure we have a few tales that people know nothing about. Amazing instances of survival and coincidence like... Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Goring, aboard the Coast Guard cutter USS Duane, was swept off his ship by a mountainous wave during a storm. The ship was turned around to rescue him when suddenly another giant wave tossed him back on board to safety. Or how about Joe Frank Jones of the 8th Army Air Force, who fell 13,000 feet and suffered no broken bones. Returning from his 22nd mission over Germany in a fortress, he collided in midair and fell 13,000 feet in the severed tail section of the plane without serious injury and, as we said, no broken bones. Then there's the tale of Gunner's mate Alan C. Hin, who was saved three times in three minutes by his equipment. When his boat, the Juno, was sunk by a Japanese submarine, his life was saved by his helmet, which was crushed and his skull fractured. Two minutes later, he sank with the ship, but his life jacket brought him up where he was saved by a raft. He was then the only survivor of the 12 men on that raft. 
So trust that no matter how many times you've been swept off your boat or how many feet you've fallen out of the air, we at Ripley's will be here to chronicle your story. Believe us or not. Believe it or not. Like eyes of flesh and teeth. Whose eyes are these that watch us? So many light years beneath. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner, and I edit the show. The Notcast is typically recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Uh, it's now being recorded in my dining room and wherever Ryan was. Um, the Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, please go tap that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Next week on The Notcast, we follow a fellow journalist as she sneaks into a secret organization, one that was originally created for magicians by Alistair Crowley. Why do we tag along? It's to see if she can prove her theory that modern secret societies are struggling to find new members in today's social media obsessed world. We dive into the world of secret societies next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not Cast. Believe it or not.